Welcome to the third and final episode of the Foreign Desk's second historical series. For three weeks, we've been examining historical events as the Foreign Desk might have covered them at the time, working only from the information which would have been available to us. This week, it's the Sack of Troy by Greek soldiers secreted inside a wooden horse in probably 1184 BC. In our parallel universe, this episode goes to air on Saturday, April 26th, 1184 BC. We do know that there wasn't any radio then, and indeed that we are talking a solid 30 centuries before Guglielmo Marconi was even born, but this is frankly the least of the liberties this episode will take with verifiable reality. Monocle's Istanbul correspondent Hannah Lucinda Smith assumes the role of our Troy correspondent. Playing the part of royal correspondent is Dr Jane Draycott, lecturer in classics at the University of Glasgow, and the author and classicist Daisy Dunn is our geopolitical analyst. The Trojan War appears to be over and Troy has most certainly lost. After a decade of ineffectual, attritional siege, Greek soldiers have this week penetrated Troy's defences via an ingenious, if ungallant, ruse. They faked a withdrawal, making a great show of launching their warships into the Dardanelles, leaving behind an apparent peace offering in the form of an enormous wooden horse. The delighted, if arguably naive, Trojans hauled this gift inside their city walls. After dark, an advance guard of Greek troops emerged from inside the contraption, ambushed the startled Trojan guards and hurled open the gates to admit their comrades. Troy is now a ruin, its leaders dead. It is astonishing to consider that this calamity is the ultimate consequence of a really quite minor royal scandal. Listeners will doubtless recall the flap occasioned by Helen, flippity-gibbet wife of the Greek king Menelaus, running off with Paris, son of the Trojan king Priam. Many ordinary people have this week paid a terrible price for the infidelity, pride and jealousy of their overlords. It's like a fable of some kind. Why did the Trojans fall for such a stunt? What does this decisive Greek victory mean for the regional power balance? Will the gods be angry? Did any of this, in fact, even happen? This is the Foreign Desk. We saw crowds and Trojan soldiers moving towards the walls, the defensive walls, which surround this city, and particularly moving towards the main gate. But then the gates opened and in came this horse, I mean, it's quite unlike anything I've seen. Absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of peace offering? Is it some kind of icon? What are we meant to do with it? I think it's important to remember here that the only reason that Menelaus is king of Sparta is because he's married to Helen. So there is a sort of a reputational thing going on here. He would, of course, be well within his rights to divorce her, to punish her. I've heard some rumours from the soldiers that they're quite keen to stone her to death. So things could still end very badly for Helen. Well, it could be that we wake up tomorrow and realise that everything we've been discussing is some poet's fiction. But the truth is that Troy exists at Hishalik on the west coast of Turkey. And there's some subtle evidence of ancient warfare in the archaeological layers buried beneath. As for whether the war lasted 10 years, 
was sparked by the theft of Helen and influenced by the whim of gods. I think we await final confirmation from the Greek press office on that one. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. We're joined, first of all, from the wreckage of Troy by our correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith, who saw these barely believable events unfold. Hannah, first of all, let's start with this horse, this extraordinary apparatus that we have been hearing reports about. What did it look like and how did it work? So the first thing that we really knew about it was we saw crowds and Trojan soldiers moving towards the walls, the defensive walls, which surround this city and particularly moving towards the main gate. And usually when that happens, it's a sign of some kind of attack. So that was the initial response from people. They thought that we were again under attack. But then the gates opened and in came this horse. I mean, it's quite unlike anything I've seen. Absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, What's it for? Is it some kind of peace offering? Is it some kind of icon? What are we meant to do with it? So this was wheeled through the gates, wheeled right to the centre of the city, people starting to speculate what it was for, and then, of course, we found out. When we describe this thing as a wooden horse, you don't mean wooden horse in any figurative sense. This is literally some sort of carpentry representation of a horse. It looked like a horse. Absolutely. You know, I really can't stress enough exactly how huge it was. Like, this is towering over people. You know, it's something that we only really see in kind of, you know, ceremonies or, you know, as offerings. You know, it's not something that we've seen in Troy really for the past 10 years. We've been living under siege. It's been a pretty kind of hand-to-mouth existence. To suddenly have, you know, this huge icon wheeled in was, you know, really an event. Did anybody at the time pipe up and say is bringing this large vehicle in through the fortified gates of our city, all things considered, really that bright an idea? So I think the overwhelming response, you know, there have been reports over the past few weeks about a possible peace deal with Greece, you know, possible back-channel talks. So, you know, this was the context that this happened in. But there were a couple of people who sort of raised some concerns. One was a priest. He said, no, hang on what's really going on here, and he was attacked by a mob who was strangled with a couple of snakes. Also, the king's daughter, Cassandra, also reportedly raised some concerns with her father, but clearly not taken seriously. Cassandra, you do have to wonder if that name might catch on as some sort of synonym for doomsaying, but we have had varied reports of what then happened. So talk us through what occurred after dark, once the horse had been hauled in through the gates of Troy. Yeah, so, I mean, all day people had been coming to take a look, you know, sort of talking, admiring it, saying clearly this is a kind of peace offering that we've got here from the Greeks. And the crowd had kind of thinned out, people had gone home, so just a few witnesses around when, on the underbelly of the horse, a flap opened and soldiers started pouring out. Now, clearly... This is not what anyone expected at that point. There was absolute panic. Words started going around. People started waking up. The Trojan army started to try and arrange itself for a fight back. But inside this horse, we think about three dozen soldiers, but clearly the absolute elite of the Greek army, highly trained, ready for their mission, and, of course, have the advantage of surprise. So pretty quickly, they were able to overwhelm those Trojan soldiers around them. What can you tell us about reports that Odysseus himself was among them? Yeah, I mean, these are unconfirmed at the moment, but I think it seems fairly likely that he would be among them. Clearly, you know, one of the kind of stars of 
the Greek army, one of their leading figures. I think it, certainly he would have played a part in this plan, and I think it's almost certain that he is among those soldiers who came into the city on the horse. You put the number of the soldiers in the horse at approximately three dozen. How much damage have they been able to do? The city of Troy is now pretty much completely under their control. I mean, first of all, as I said, you know, the fact that these were clearly elite soldiers, having trained for this moment, very obviously, for a long time, and just having this advantage of surprise. You know, they were able really, really quickly to overwhelm the soldiers around them, to start fanning out, then to go to the gates, open the gates, let other Greek soldiers in. It was a really, really tightly planned operation. And actually, this evening, you know, the city is really almost under complete military lockdown. Soldiers are going house to house, trying to search out any remnants of the Trojan army, We're also not sure where the king and his family are. I think it's fairly certain that they would have been high up on the target list as well. There have been reports that the king and his family are all dead. Is that confirmed or not? Yeah, these are reports that are going around Troy as well. But I have to say, you know, it is a state of absolute confusion here. You know, this is a city, as we said at the start, already suffered 10 years under siege. The infrastructure already battered. A lot of people have already left this city in waves over the years as refugees and tonight, again, a new wave of people just trying anything to get out of the city, trying to find any smuggling routes, any way to get out. So, yeah, at the moment it is really hard to confirm these reports, but I think it is quite clear, judging by the kind of actions of the Greek soldiers inside the city tonight, that if they don't have the king and his family under arrest at the moment, then that's going to happen very soon. So does this feel kind of climactic to you? Do you think that you might have witnessed at least the beginning of the end of Troy? I would say so. I mean, I think it's pretty difficult to see how the Trojan army might be able to come back from this. I mean, this kind of military operation is so audacious. It's, you know, something that's never seen before and I think something that's probably going to be talked about for hundreds of years to come from now. Possibly, again, as some sort of metaphor for something. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Troy, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. It is obviously with the greatest reluctance and regret that a serious, highfalutin foreign affairs programme such as this descends to royal gossip. However, it is impossible to understand what has befallen Troy without understanding the tawdry palace intrigues that have led us here. Jane Draycott, our royal correspondent, joins me now to make sense of how all this started. Jane, I think the person we need to start with is the figure at the centre of this scandal, which does now appear to have brought calamity upon the Kingdom of Troy. Who is Helen and why this extraordinary amount of fuss about one woman? Well, Helen of Troy is actually Helen of Sparta. She is the daughter officially the daughter of King Tyndareus and Queen Leda of Sparta. That makes her a princess of Sparta. Mm -hmm. Now, unofficially, I've heard some rumours that she is not actually King Tyndareus's daughter. She is actually the daughter of Zeus, King of the Gods, and he supposedly visited her mother in the form of a swan, and Helen resulted from their activity. So... If she is, in fact, the daughter of Zeus, the king of the gods, this explains why she's so special. Because in ancient Greece, beautiful maidens are ten a penny. You find them everywhere. (laughs) Helen is something special. She's not just beautiful. She is, well, 
it wouldn't be hyperbole to say she is actually the most beautiful woman in the world. And if Zeus is her real father, that would explain that, really. Now, obviously, everybody is familiar with the scandal by which she ditched the king of Sparta and ran off with Paris. Is it clear at this point what Paris was up to there, whether indeed Helen had all that much say in it? Was Paris just keen on Helen, as it seems any man would have had reason to be? Or was he trying to put one over on King Menelaus for some reason? Well, I don't personally think... Menelaus had anything to do with it whatsoever. Paris was after Helen. He wanted the most beautiful woman in the world to fall in love with him. And according to my sources, the goddess Aphrodite promised him that she would make that happen. So Paris, well, he's behaved very badly in this whole saga. It has to be said, he visited King Menelaus, Queen Helen on a diplomatic mission And then when Menelaus was otherwise engaged because his grandfather died and he went to the funeral, Paris ran off with Helen, ran off with a load of Menelaus's treasure. So he is absolutely in the wrong here. He has violated every social norm and every kind of of social decency by going into his host's house and absconding, not just with his wife, but also with his property. I mean, you can see how a fellow would take that hard. But nonetheless, why did Menelaus decide to make such a thing of it? To the extent, in fact, of starting a literal war. Could he not have just styled it out, said, look, it's her loss, I'm king, plenty more fish in the sea, etc.? To be honest, would you? I mean, I think Menelaus is well within his rights to be a little bit peeved by all of this. And considering that he is a king and Helen is a queen and he's very well connected, his brother is also a king. It's not surprising that he has used his resources, the resources at his disposal to attempt to get his wife back. He did ask and Paris refused. King Priam, Paris's father refused. The Trojans have kept Helen inside their city For 10 years, they've had plenty of opportunities to return her. Helen has had plenty of opportunities to return to Menelaus. So I think you're trying to paint Menelaus as the bad guy here. And personally, (laughs) (laughs) I think this is completely in the wrong. Well, that's as may be. But Paris, of course, is no longer with us. And and the the fact of his uh, rather messy end might have provided Helen with a an out, if you like, a chance to return to Sparta if she wanted to do that, but she did not. Um, She married Paris's brother instead. As far as we understand it now, and events are still moving, but what is likely to become of Helen? Is Menelaus going to feel either obliged or indeed able to take her back to Sparta after going to all this bother? I mean, it's not just that she left him for Paris, but then sort of left him subsequently for Paris's brother as well. My question is, whatever Menelaus's personal regard for Helen may be, is it not possible that the people of Sparta might start to think their king is being a bit weird? I think it's important to remember here that the only reason that Menelaus is king of Sparta is because he's married to Helen. So there is that. He owes his position to her. He also, he owes a certain amount of prestige to her as well being the husband of the most beautiful woman in the world, the supposed daughter of Zeus. So there is a sort of a reputational thing going on here. She's also the mother of his daughter, his only legitimate child, the heir to the throne of Sparta. It's it's tricky. 
he would of course be well within his rights to divorce her to punish her i've heard some rumors from the soldiers that they're quite keen to stone her to death so things could still end very badly for helen I mean, is it likely then that if we consider this from Helen's point of view, she might think going back to Menelaus is probably the pragmatic option? Or are there other contenders? Odysseus, who apparently led the men out of this wooden horse, she knocked him back some while ago, but he can now position himself as whatever Menelaus's instructions were. Odysseus was the guy who got the job done. Is he a contender at this point? Odysseus is actually married to Helen's cousin Penelope. So... Yeah, but that's that's fixable, surely. <laughs> well, I think actually Odysseus chose to marry Penelope. He wasn't so keen on marrying Helen. He's a, he's an intelligent man. He can see that she's trouble, <laughs> so uh, he just wants to go home to his wife. But as far as Helen's options are concerned, she's been in Troy for ten years. She went there with Paris. Paris is no longer with us. She's subsequently married his brother. His brother is no longer with us either. And I've been told, I have it on good authority, that the Trojans, well, they hate her. <laughs> what surprise, <laughs> she's brought war and calamity on their city. She's the cause of the death of most of the royal family. So I don't think the Trojans at this point really want to keep Helen, no matter what Helen might want to do in that regard. So very possibly she wants to go home to Sparta. She wants to see her daughter again. She wants to be among her own people. And I wouldn't blame her for wanting a quiet life after the excitement of the last decade. Is it arguable that there's any level at which that Helen, for all that she does not present as a terrifically sympathetic character right now, is there a case that she has been a victim of circumstance? I would absolutely agree with that. Helen how much agency she's had in this whole affair is very questionable because the reason, the entire reason that she is with Paris in the first place is that Paris was promised by the goddess Aphrodite, the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, where was Helen's opinion asked in that? Nowhere. But it's important to remember that while Helen may not have had much of a choice in all of this, Paris may also not have had so much of a choice in it because when he was born, I have it on good authority that his mother had a vision that was interpreted to mean that Paris was going to be responsible for the destruction of Troy. And he was actually exposed as a baby to try and get him as far away from Troy as possible. Like a bad penny, he turned up again as an adult. And we have seen what has transpired as a result of that. But it is important to remember that the gods ultimately have much more power over human affairs than the humans themselves. You're probably quite right in assessing that such Trojans as have survived recent events probably have come round to thinking that Helen is a stretch more trouble than she's been worth. Is there any worry at all that the people of Sparta, in contemplating the wreckage of Troy, might be having similar misgivings? Well, the people of Sparta... I think at this point in time, they're probably quite pleased that the Greeks have been victorious, the Spartans particularly have been victorious. Their queen, their divine queen, is potentially going to be brought back home to them, restoring harmony and happiness to the royal family there. So as far as the Spartans are concerned, there's not really any downside to this, I don't think. That was Jane Draycott, our royal correspondent.
You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, though the apparent obliteration of Troy has occurred by farcical means and for ridiculous reasons, it will radically reorder the strategic balance of the eastern Mediterranean. Well, I'm joined now by the geopolitical analyst Daisy Dunn. Daisy, we heard earlier from our correspondent on the spot that Troy is more or less destroyed. Are you surprised that it folded up so quickly? It has, of course, perhaps been weakened by these 10 years of siege, but was it vastly overestimated as a power? I don't think we did. Troy is an important vassal state of the Hittite Empire, which itself stretches right away from the Aegean to Iraq. And Troy has often been described as the power of Asia with a strong kingdom at its heart. I think really the problem is that the Trojan citadel itself is very compact. The most surprising thing actually is that it didn't fold sooner, withstanding a year-long siege on such a small plane would have been a grand achievement. A decade is almost inexplicable. So is this then an unalloyed triumph for the Greeks? We are now hearing reports that the gods are angry, especially Poseidon, whose wrath is obviously no small change. The Greeks may be jubilant in the coming days if, as is likely, their victory is confirmed, but the coming weeks and months, I think, will surely show what this outcome actually means. This isn't just about the fall of one city. The people here are already talking about this being the end of the age of heroes that we live in. The death toll on both sides has been heavy. It may be too early for predictions, but my feeling is we're going to witness significant upheaval among the surviving Greek peoples, disruptions to existing trade networks, migrations as a new age dawns. And as for the gods, it's certainly rumoured to be wrath on the side of those who supported the Trojans, and that definitely includes the sea god Poseidon. You mentioned earlier Troy's importance as an outpost of the Hittite Empire. With Troy apparently now completely vanquished, how does that alter the, the general strategic picture in the region, especially in terms of those trade routes via the Dardanelles that you were referring to? Well, strategically, the position of Troy makes it highly desirable. Being so close to the Hellespont means it's ideally located between the Aegean and its islands and the Black Sea. So as a trading post, it could hardly be bettered. And for this reason, its loss is likely to be of huge significance to the wider population of Asia Minor and surely something that the Greeks will strive to capitalise on moving forward. We should look at what becomes of a few of the key characters involved here. We consider first Menelaus. Is his power now completely entrenched? Does Sparta go on to dominate the coming decades and centuries? Menelaus is widely expected to return to Sparta with Helen. There's no real indication at this stage of a threat to his throne, but maybe we'll anticipate that after 10 years away, he'll be anxious to shift his focus away from the international stage to concentrate more on domestic policy. This will be crucial for Sparta's survival going forward and certainly as its position as a key city-state in the coming centuries. We should talk a bit as well about Menelaus's brother, Agamemnon, who is, of course, the king of Mycenae, commander-in-chief of the Greek forces that stormed Troy. Do we expect greater prominence for him? 
Well, insiders are certainly looking closely at Agamemnon's return to Mycenae. His homecoming will no doubt be an emotional one, lest we forget he sacrificed his young daughter, Iphigenia, to secure a fair wind for his voyage to Troy. His wife, Clytemnestra, is known to be a strong woman, but she was understandably heartbroken by what happened. And remember also, Agamemnon is not returning home to her alone. He has King Priam's daughter, Cassandra, with him. So we wait to see whether Clytemnestra will happily welcome her husband and Cassandra as a slave to her household, or whether something different will come to pass. What becomes now of Odysseus? Do we expect him to return home in triumph? Or might he perhaps instead embark on some enormous decade-long yomp around the Mediterranean, getting menaced by cannibals, warbling seductresses, cheese-drugging witches, one-eyed giants, and so on? (laughs) Well, Odysseus is the wily one. He certainly hasn't been the first of the men to board a boat directly back home to his island of Ithaca. He has not been gasconading too much in his glory, but I think it's fair to say he is a highly desirable man and he keeps being detained as he carries on. Word is he's currently bedded down with a nymph called Calypso. It could be worse for Odysseus, clearly. And I guess just to wrap things up, there's one final question which I think overhangs everything that we have discussed in this interview and indeed in this episode, which is how sure are we that any of this actually happened? Well, it could be that we wake up tomorrow and realise that everything we've been discussing is some poet's fiction. But the truth is that Troy exists at Hishalik on the west coast of Turkey, and there's some subtle evidence of ancient warfare in the archaeological layers buried beneath it, corresponding with the period of the Trojan War, circa 1180 BC. As for whether the war lasted 10 years, was sparked by the theft of Helen, and influenced by the whim of gods. I think we await final confirmation from the Greek press office on that one. Daisy Dunn, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week resuming our normal service, examining the current affairs of these times. And do look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.